Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin. I'm your host. Today, my guest is Maggie Jensen, and she is an alternative recovery coach and the creator of the Magnify Method, an up-to-date science-backed program devoted to personal development and overcoming addictive behavior. She is a behavior change specialist and utilizes her nutrition coaching and personal training education to practice holistic mind-body-soul recovery, helping clients learn to think different, to drink different, or never again. It was great to talk to Maggie Jensen. She has such a magnetic energy. I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. And she shares her story where she overcame such incredible challenges to find her way out of drinking and alcoholism by changing how she thought about her whole situation and how that thinking changed her whole relationship to alcohol and her destructive behavior. So I hope you get as much out of this episode as I did. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you have and write a review on iTunes. I really do appreciate it. It really does help the podcast get found. Thank you all for all who have done that and taken the time to do that. That does mean a lot to me. So stay tuned for this episode. You're going to get a lot out of it. Welcome, everyone, to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Maggie Jensen, and we're going to talk about harm reduction. We're going to talk about nutrition and fitness as part of recovery and the importance of all of that and hear your story, Maggie. So I'm excited to to talk with you and, and hear all about this. So why don't you just start by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks, Dwayne. I'm Maggie Jensen, and I'm excited to be here since listening to your podcast. I feel like that connection, like we should just be friends and the same with your guest as well. So it's an honor to be included here. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> just to kind of give people the background, I am 31 years old. I live in Las Vegas, ironically, and I'm an army spouse. My husband Hopefully we're thinking this is his last duty station and he'll retire out here and we'll just make the best of our rest of our lives here. And I look awesome. around now at life and it's 
the polar opposite of everything that I experienced up until around age 29. And for anybody that has reached that point of their life where they've really transformed, it's such a gratifying feeling, so proud of ourselves and so thankful for the rough patches that got us here, right? So yeah, um, yeah. every day is beautiful here. So yeah, I'm excited to hear your story and and to talk about that transformation and and moving through that process because reading your your story, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to it and and hear it. So, let's kind of jump in a little bit in your history leading up to this transformation. Yeah, and I'm going to apologize. We're going to go way back, but I know for That's most of right. us, you know, we got to start from chapter 1 and for me that starts actually around age 5 and up until then, things looked pretty normal. My mom was a disabled student teacher, so special needs teacher, and my dad was military as well. We lived in the Midwest, and everything was kosher. My two older brothers and I were very close, and, you know, I look back at the pictures, I'm like, oh my goodness, such potential. That's so beautiful. <laughs> such potential. Uh, <laughs> and we can laugh about things right now. We got to kind of take things with a grain of salt, but it was a, around my fifth birthday where I started to notice some differences with my mom. And these differences were a gut feeling, a sense of disconnect with her. And it seemed as if she went from an extremely warm and loving and caring mother to isolating herself. And it was about a year before my brothers were the ones that told me what alcoholism was or what addiction was and explained to me not only was my mom drinking alcohol, a concept right. for a six-year-old to understand. Like, what, what does uh, that, but that mean? Might... Like, yeah, six-year-old's yeah. going, huh? I don't understand. Exactly. It's this liquid that she's choosing to drink that makes her stumble and she can't remember the things that she says to me the next day. It was all very discombobulating. And at the same time, my brothers were also telling me about my parents' divorce. And so it was a big, obviously, identity crisis, I would think, for my mom. It seems in hindsight like she had become the military wife and the teacher, but she had lost a sense of herself. Right. And it was up until May of this year with her death that she quit drinking. So it was quite a long, wow. quite a long career with alcohol for her. And with that, the trauma and the tribulations with alcoholism in the home, um, as a, a college student, I started to really dive into it around 20, 21 years old of the effects of what children of alcoholics go through and what happens to them as adults. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm not this crazy person for these issues that I'm experiencing now. It was the programming right. and that conditioning in childhood. Like being able to put these experiences together and go, oh, this is why I do these crazy things. And this is why I make these some of these choices that probably aren't the best for me. And But they start to make sense. Exactly. And it's actually a laundry list is what they call it. 14 things that they're kind of precursors or foreshadowings of what children of alcoholics will experience as adults. Things like lying when telling the truth would be easier or being extremely judgmental of yourself. 
there's obviously 12 others, but one of the big statistics is that children of alcoholics will grow up to either become an alcoholic themselves or marry one because they're so conditioned to that lifestyle. And I think a part of that statistic also feeds into the idea of the disease model, but everything that I learn dispels that and really points to environmental conditioning. And that was definitely the case for myself. I experienced these traumas up until age 12 when my brother, he took his life and I was home alone with him. And at that time, I was almost, oh, I wouldn't say I was over my mom's drinking, but I was kind of numb to it at that point. I was 12, so I had been enduring it for seven years. And when Eric passed away, that seemed like the biggest trauma. That seemed like the biggest thing. And so it was only about six months later that I began drinking myself. Right. I had watched my mom escape with alcohol, and so it seemed like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And your and your brother committing suicide and going through that. I mean, that's just so much pain. It was so much pain. And and what I've learned is that it's trauma is not always the like the obvious thing that happens, that the death of my brother was the obvious thing. But right. that was so exacerbated because I was taught not to talk about feelings with my mom and and with the alcoholism in the home, we don't talk about things. So after his death, traumatic experience, but the trauma grew from the fact that we don't talk about Eric. We act like it never happened. Right. The pictures yeah. come down. Oh my goodness. It was really only when my mom drank that she would talk about him. And it was in these really nasty ways of, Maggie, you were home alone with him. Why weren't you with him? You should have been the one that died. If I could have chosen a child to have passed away, it would have been you. And of course, she said oh this in gosh, much. Oh my gosh, Maggie, that just breaks my heart. And I found alcohol was the, you know, the thing that yeah. got me through that. And it wasn't, like I said at the beginning, it wasn't until I was 29 that I had experiences that shook me awake to say, you don't need to self-sabotage. You don't need to hide from your emotions anymore. And obviously, there's a lot between age 13 and 29 that I think anybody that's struggling with feeling like they're too far gone, too deep, too damaged, they messed anything too up, anything up too much, they could hear and be like, oh, well, she did it as well. And she's back. She bounced back from it. I mean, I let alcohol cause poor decision-making in my life, two DUIs. I myself joined the military and was pretty quickly discharged from the military because of my party lifestyle. Right. I tried college and I was going after all of these manufactured goals and alcohol was always the thing that kept me away from my studies. And so all of these things just kept snowballing. And I guess for me, my message is that anybody out there that feels like they've endured too much trauma or they've messed everything up to a point that there's no comeback that we can we can adjust that belief and we can definitely re retarget that can change so for, for you you were in this all of those beliefs right where i'm i'm messed up i'm somehow so broken that there's no hope for me but something happened that changed you right 
Yeah. And I credit my brother's passing with kind of the reason why I chose to start drinking. But it was actually to obviously fast forward when I was 27. It was my father's passing that eventually caused me to wake up to say, life is short. Death is a part of life. And you were taught these things through experiences with the closest men in your life. You were taught this for a reason. So wake up and get your shit together and go right. tell people about how capable they actually are of changing their direction. My dad was the only person after Eric passed away that would talk openly about it. And we would discuss really in-depth conversations. Why do we think he took his life? Why do we think that he did it when I was home alone with him? We would get very spiritual about it. We would get very philosophical about it. It was the only person that, and I'm going to use a little bit of psychology speak, that would emotionally hold me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's what they point back to the reason why trauma is so intense for some people is after the circumstance, after the event, there's nobody that emotionally holds them and gives them a space to process that emotion. And it was my dad that did give me that. And then, I mean, we were he was my pillar. He was my cornerstone for life. Every area that my mom lacked, he end up, ended up making up for tenfold. As I was a teenager and in early 20s, he was the one that had unconditional love for me throughout my military hookup and my DUIs, but he was killed in a motorcycle accident and mm. when I was 27. When I was 28, it was a year of blackouts, a year of just tumult, but then 29, it was a month before quarantine. It was February 25th, and I said, I've had enough... I am done. I'm putting my foot down. All the stuff that I learned from AA, going with my mom, going to Al-Anon throughout my childhood, even trying in my early 20s, that's not working. <laughs> What's going right. to work for me? There's got to be something that works for me. And so I started to get creative and just let my curiosity take me down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And of course, during quarantine, we had all the time on our hands, right? So the timing of that. I imagine the universe was working some sort of magic of the timing of my dad's death at the end of 2018, me experiencing kind of the last straws during 2019, yeah. and then and finally at the beginning of 2020 saying, nope, no more. No more. I mean, it sounds like your your father for you was was the one who could could hold you in that pain and all that uncertainty and all that fear. He was able to walk with you through that. And then with Absolutely. him passing, you're you're really man, I, I would imagine just on your own and you had to you had to do something to to pull yourself out. You had to shift something. You had some kind of moment, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes they say the moment of clarity or something changed in you. Yeah, moment of clarity, something that I like to kind of anchor into was like this radical perspective shift that yeah. occurred for me. And the more I dig into the way that I reprogram my mind, I it all roots back to some sort of way that I shifted my perspective of the quote-unquote trauma that I experienced, the pain and then my perception of myself, 
being this shameful, damaged, diseased person. I had to rewrite that, but it was like something clicked. And a part of me goes back and I can get really spiritual and say it was my dad's energy guiding me, giving me this, this power, this internal gut feeling. I could also say it was just honestly my... I guess my inability to deal with the anxiety any longer, that was probably the most conscious thing that was popping into my mind. I remember waking up February 15th. I said, I am so tired of waking up feeling like I need to apologize for something that I have no idea what I did. Yeah. So it was something really internal and very conscious as well. Sorry to interrupt. No, I was just going to say that, um, you know, we can get so rooted in our belief systems and they can hold us so hostage that we don't even realize in some ways that we have these belief systems. They're so automatic. They're so like wired in us. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it can be, you know, a a person who can help us do that. Or sometimes some of our intense suffering in a way, I think forces us to shift in a way. And, And losing your father sounds like that was that, that intense suffering and shifted that whole belief system. And, and you could kind of, see it. And now that you could start to manifest these different beliefs. Absolutely. I think my entire life after Eric passed away was so focused on the pain of death. Right. That pain was there with my dad. And I remember actually saying, this is more painful than when Eric passed away. But that pain soon turned into this drive of while you've experienced firsthand how short and quick life is, do you really want to spend the rest of this gift that you've been given on ruining moments because you're so upset about that death or those deaths? Yeah. There's there's this this new appreciation, this new like, wait a minute, I can't be here anymore. This is just not mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And with my beliefs, it caused me to look around and see, like you mentioned, we create these beliefs that we don't really even become aware of. I realized that all of these little beliefs that I was unaware of before were actually putting me what was like a self-imposed prison. Every choice that I made was around this belief that I am damaged, that I'm an F up, that I'm destined to be an addict because once an addict, always an addict, and everybody in your life leaves you, everybody in your life passes away, you're going to be alone. I mean, I could go on and on. And these beliefs, it was necessary for me to take the time and really analyze them. Yeah. And and to be able to start to pull them apart. So you also call yourself an alternative recovery coach. And I want to get into that a little bit because it sounds like for you, you had experience in the abstinence model of addiction treatment and and now you're like, wait a minute, that didn't work for me. And so you have a different approach. Right. Yeah. Uh, I say I use the abstinence model because that's literally the only thing I thought that existed because I was taught before I was 10 that addiction was a disease. I was going to AA meetings with my mom. I was going to Al-Anon with my mom. So I was very much programmed to believe that addiction is a genetic disease. 
you will be recovering, working on your recovery forever. If you're not drinking, you are going to have to be going to AA. You're going to have to be fighting tooth and nail with willpower to abstain every second. That kept me from really having a positive mindset about it in general, the fear of that, um, but then also just the rigidity of it and the black and white aspect of it. So it was kind of me fumbling my way, finding new ways to keep my mind busy. I thought, okay, at the root, what is AA making me believe? It's making me really believe in the past being what's going on now, you know, rooting me in being powerless. So I said, okay, well, what's the opposite of being powerless? Being powerful. What is something that I can literally do that's going to make me feel powerful and in control? And this is like literally infant stages of this, like February 2020, right, right. March 2020. And something that had always interested me was nutrition and fitness. But of course, back when you know I was journaling about age 21, age 22, I was like, ah, but I'm a drunk. I could never do that. I could never start my own business. I could never own a gym. I'm, I'm a college dropout. Look at everything I've messed up. It took almost 10 years, what, seven years for that belief to subside and for the world to shut down for me to say, I think now's the time for me to go after this dream that I've been talking myself out of. So I said, it would make me feel powerful if I knew how to create my own workout program and see, literally see before my eyes, the physical adaptations, my mental differences, the boost in my mental health. And that worked almost, I would say almost immediately, the first week of doing it. I was like, wow, looking forward to it, you know? When I hear you, I almost sense this like burst of courage to take the risk to go against these beliefs that you were holding about yourself, that you were incapable, that you were, yeah, like you said, a mess up, a screw up. There's no way you could do anything uh, about this. And then there's this burst of courage that you took the risk to say, well, we're going to find out, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> talking myself out of it hasn't really worked very well so far. So let me try something different. Yeah. Yeah. But that yeah. takes courage, right? Yeah. You know, I think we get comfortable in our own beliefs sometimes and we don't even realize we're stuck in them, but we know them. So we just keep going. Absolutely. And I get a lot of questions as far as like, oh, did you hit rock bottom before you made a difference in your life? And, you know, everybody's rock bottom can be different. I don't necessarily feel like I hit that stereotypical rock bottom, but I do feel like I hit a point where my only option was to recruit that courage. Yeah. It was either stay there or put on your big girl panties and get to work here because it's not working what you are doing. Right, right. Like this has to, it's, it's either almost like this option or I won't even say like it's death or this option. It's not living. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I wasn't or... living. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, the way that I was living, every aspect was I was planning around my next drink. I was planning around being able to coddle my hangover. I was planning, you know, oh, I hope I could do that. But I don't know, because I might get blackout drunk. All of these little beliefs of almost like not trusting myself. I don't trust that I could do that because I'm going to be drunk. Right, right. 
or I'm going to need to drink. And so challenging those beliefs, absolutely, it took courage, but every little thing that I did boosted that courage through confidence. Right. So you were building on this, these small steps were building on each other to Mm -hmm. actually shift your whole belief system and say, wait a minute, wait, Mm -hmm. I am more capable than I thought. Absolutely. And that's one reason... (laughs) Right. When, then I believed. And and that's one reason why when I founded Magnify, the full LLC name is Magnify Progressive Wellness, because I thought for a little while, and I think back to like my mid-20s of why I never really got the best results with fitness before, was because I was throwing myself into extreme workouts, almost to think, like I think about it, I was almost punishing myself. But in 2020, What I did was say, what's a little goal that I could start now where I'm at without really throwing myself to the wolves, without overwhelming myself? What's something small I can do? Okay, that was achievable. That was digestible. And now I have a little boost of confidence because I did that. What's the next little thing I can do? And the next little thing. Instead of aiming for the 10 spot, and exhausting myself and then being like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could do that every day. I aim for the two or the three. And then the next day I aim for the four or the five. And at its core, I think that most people that struggle, and I mean, science would say this, most leading addiction doctors say this as well, uh, that addiction stems from trauma that leads to lack of confidence. So everything that we think that we want to do We think that everybody else is perfectly capable, but not me. I couldn't do it. And so through this progressive kind of program that I was building myself, I started to soar with confidence. And it was such a a flip of a switch for me. And that's what I would always say with AA. When I was doing the AA thing, doing the steps, I was like, I just think that there's supposed to be like a switch that flips. And aren't I supposed to feel better one day? And it was Ooh. never flipping. <laughs> and you were stuck there in the, with the same beliefs. I, I'm broken. I'm flawed. I, mm-hmm. I'm no good. Uh, one of the things I was thinking of is I ha- have the saying, and I don't know where I got it, but it's like small hinges swing big doors, right? You, you don't need to make. I love that. Yeah. I don't know where I heard it, but I heard it somewhere. But I loved it. And I, I'm like, yeah, you don't need to make these huge changes. You can make some small mm-hmm. changes and they build upon each other. Absolutely. I love that metaphor as well. And I always say small shifts equal big transformation. And I think most of us in America, I mean, we listen to the programs for exercise and nutrition and all these things, and they all kind of encourage these really big lifestyle transformations. And we overlook those little tiny things. It's those little tiny things that set up that winning feeling inside of you so that you actually believe in yourself enough to take on the next challenge and the next challenge. Right. Yeah. And over time, that just that builds upon itself. You also Mm -hmm. really practice from this holistic perspective, the the mind-body connection, the mind-body-soul connection. And I would love to talk about how the physical nutritional part impacted your belief system and, you know, about yourself and your, and your mood, because I think that's really important. Absolutely. I love this topic and I'll 
you feel free to interrupt me if I start going, you know, on crazy tangents, because I could talk about this all day. But I feel like it's a, a huge missing link in traditional recovery that we're not addressing nutrition for healing your internal health, but also recovery. And then there's a whole habit mindset aspect to it with the confidence boosting. So while we're on that part, you know, to piggyback, think about the type of person whose identity, they know that they are the type of person that eats a a healthy breakfast in the morning. They follow it up with a good 10 a.m. snack, something high protein. Somebody eats lunch. They're not just going through the drive-thru every lunch. Maybe they meal prep. And then somebody at night who sits down and has a family dinner. That type of person is focusing their mental energy throughout the day on their next positive behavior with their eating. When they get done with that meal, that snack, that confidence is there again. Think about how good you feel when you skip the donut and you choose the, I don't know, protein shake. Every once in a while, you know, we got to have a donut. But for the most part, think about how good you feel about yourself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of, you think, wow, I do control things. It's literally teaching your brain that you control what you put in your mouth. And for the listeners, I'm doing like a a motion of like feeding yourself. Instead of thinking about putting something destructive in your body, you're focusing your mental energy on putting something constructive, something that's going to help you rebuild. But then on kind of a more granular nutrition science aspect When our blood sugar is low, we as humans will be impulsive, compulsive, we will make sporadic decisions, and we will oftentimes act very irritable. Right. Yeah, it can really impact our behavior. Like we, you know, the science is showing that, that our blood sugar, our nutritional elements that we put in our body can impact our mood, can impact our choices. Absolutely. I mean, we have this term that we all joke about, oh, you're hangry. But hanger is that term for having low blood sugar, maybe not eaten. It's typically not have eaten within three to four hours prior. As a human, you need food to fuel the machine. And that's a sign that lackadaisical feeling when your eyes start to get heavy, and then you're a little short tempered, and all of a sudden, all the plans that you had and strategies that you had for the day start to go out the window. That's a sign from your body that, hey, it's time to eat again. But most of us, we had poor eating habits during our drinking career. And then we're not really taught through any type of traditional recovery, or even I would dare to say traditional diet culture, quote unquote, in America, to really eat for health versus eating for what our body is going to look like. So I believe it's so important to get a hold on what your specific body needs as far as your numbers. No human is the same as another human, just like a fingerprint. But also, what type of drinking behavior did you have? How can we address your new eating strategy for your mental health? that's going to benefit your physical health. And what I found was like by tracking my macros and being really diligent in eating with my schedule as far as every three to four hours, I was putting so much energy into progressing myself that the moment that I thought about drinking, it was like, ooh, 
it was this radical perspective shift of that's not going to help my body grow. Wow. That's not going to help my energy levels. So your relationship changed to alcohol, how you related to it shifted. Absolutely. 100%. And we will, maybe I'm already segueing a little bit into this, but that shift of perspective with it, that relationship that I had, that I broke up with, I was able to actually reintroduce it down the line in quote unquote, what people say as normal, responsible drinking. If my husband is like, hey, let's go out and celebrate our anniversary. This past year on our fifth anniversary, we celebrated with a glass of wine. And I look at it and what psychology speak calls is the functionality of it. What's the functionality of your drinking? And I completely transform that. The functionality of it is if it's there and we're having one to connect, that's cool. But I would never turn to alcohol on a Monday through Friday because of my emotions, because of a need to escape or boredom. And that's kind of what we were talking about before we started recording about harm reduction. And I think that that idea really lends way to somebody believing in the fact that they can make progress. And then the long haul. Right. It really helps to surpass any feelings of shame or guilt with a quote unquote relapse or a simple lapse in sobriety. If you can look at it as, hey, it was something I did. I'm moving on with my good nutrition tomorrow. I'm going to get good sleep. I'm going to do my exercises. It really changes that relationship. So I don't ever want to get blackout drunk. I don't ever want more than two. That sounds, ugh, and I don't even want right. it that much. Like, yep. So it changes the entire perspective of alcohol. And I know that that is very polarizing to traditional recovery, but it's maybe just a new way to look at the long haul of recovery and living recovered. Yeah. And I think what you had said earlier is like, you know, everybody is unique in how they are in this life. And it's finding the road that brings you joy and happiness and fulfillment, whatever that is, you know, and maybe, you know, I would say some, some people can't do that. They find that it doesn't work for them or they have to do it this way or that way. Mm -hmm. But I like that you say, you know, everybody's unique. You got to find that what works. Yeah, find what works. And I study a lot of philosophy and this there's a philosophy that everything can work for anybody. It's about what gets you excited and what allows you to believe in it. So AA and the 12 steps in traditional recovery, if somebody really believes in that, that's going to work for them. But if somebody goes into an AA room and is like me or how I was, I didn't have a good relationship with God. I was so angry at him for my childhood and for taking Eric and taking my dad and kind of still victim mindset, but it it didn't lend way for me to believe in it. Right. This is an approach or aspect that I think more people can step into with a positive belief of, well, if I don't have to go sober forever. At least I can make progress. What I find, though, is that people go through the Magnify Method and they started saying, well, I, I chose this because I didn't want to go sober forever. And by the end, they're like, I could go sober forever. I don't want it. If it happens, it happens. But 
this is like my new identity of not being a heavy drinker. Yeah, and in so and of itself, it changes their whole relationship to, I'm going to say alcohol, but whatever it is, you know, could be other things too, yeah. not just alcohol, but changes that that whole dynamic and kind of sets you on a course towards, you know, I want to say like freedom or just being okay. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, you touched on, that's my favorite word. To really think about the opposite of addiction, in my opinion, is freedom. It's freedom from the need to escape. It's freedom from being a very harsh, critical judge of yourself. And it's freedom from the belief that you're always going to be diseased, that you're powerless. So I love that you you brought that word up. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And then, you know, there's there's a lot of research that shows that we can change how our brain is in the world and our thinking is in the world, that we're much more neuroplastic than we ever thought, which brings a lot of hope, you know, when we feel really stuck and trapped and, you know, we're, there's, there's just, there's no hope for us. But the reality is, is like, no, we're pretty changeable. Yeah. And it, it really just comes down to that belief of if you want to, and do you believe it's possible? I guess one of my favorite exercises to use in that initial stage, I didn't use it as formally as I'm about to describe, but I kind of did this haphazardly in my journal. It was what I kind of call a thought audit. I started to write down all of those beliefs, and we've talked ag nauseum about them here. I was damaged. I'm, an, I'm a mess up. I'm a screw up. I'm never fun without alcohol. One thing that was really big in my mind was I'm party girl Maggie. Nobody will love me without being party girl Maggie. It was the identity that I created. And I thought, okay, so these beliefs are not working. I need to come up with the polar opposite. And so I had all those beliefs written down on a sheet of paper. On the next sheet of paper, I wrote down the exact opposite of everything. So I'm party girl Maggie. Nobody will ever love me without it. My opposite statement was I'm healthy and I'm free and people love me because I'm magnetic. And everybody can come up with their own words and get really fun with the kind of different florally language that they use. But I would tell myself that every time that I thought, oh, what are my friends going to think now that I'm not drinking? Are they going to still be my friend? Oh, people love me because I'm fun and I'm magnetic and my positivity is contagious. Right. And it's very uh, widespread now. Affirmations are so popular, but that's literally what those were. They're auto suggestions, but it's not just saying it in the morning looking in the mirror. It's saying it to yourself every single time that you're consciously aware that you're thinking that negative belief. And that eventually overwrites the program. And I'd also say that, you know, sometimes it takes the time to step back to see our belief systems, because often we don't even realize that we're making these calculations about how we're supposed to be because they're so ingrained in us that they're kind of like right below the surface of our consciousness. And we just have to slow down. And like you said, get, get a piece of paper out and begin to write these down, slow down your own thoughts and and begin mm -hmm. to get that awareness because you can shift them. Absolutely. Yeah, they're uh, perfectly able to shift. It just takes that time and the belief of I can really be this person. 
those opposite beliefs, like visualize it, see what that looks like for you in your mind, in your beautiful imagination. And that's going to drive you there. And I find that a lot of people have never been taught to believe in that aspect of their imagination. We're so ingrained with our beliefs that we're just driving along, not even knowing that we're imagining everything that we fear. We're imagining everything that could go wrong. And the moment you start to use those polar opposite positive statements and visualize it, you're giving your mind a blueprint of like, oh, this is what I could do. This is how that could feel. And that's what I call starving the darkness and feeding the light. Just feed that imaginative visual and it will get bigger. It will get stronger and you'll be more quote unquote motivated. What we're all searching for, right? Right. Motivation. You're going to instill that motivation in you. Oh, Maggie, thank you so much. You are inspiring. You are uh, magnetic (sighs) and, and, and have such a positive energy about you. And I, but I can also sense the groundedness that comes with, trauma and and going through trauma you know uh, there's a mm-hmm. there's a, when we go through deep trauma and we kind of come out to the other side with this you know positivity but it, it it's grounded positivity i don't know if that if that makes sense but i i just get that sense sense from you so it's it's been such a pleasure talking with you but before you go hold on i usually have one question <laughs> i love to ask every guest that yes. comes on and if someone out there is struggling, they're hurting, they're in pain, maybe they feel in that place where you were, like hopeless, stuck, and you could tell them one thing, what would you want to say? I would tell you, if you are stuck and feeling that way, to believe that if another human being can overcome, then you can too, that they have made the blueprint for you. And that it only takes that belief and maybe try that thought audit. And within a day, I guarantee you're going to have some revelations to be pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Awesome. Thank you. If people want to contact you and find you, where do they, where do they do that? Absolutely. Thank you. On Instagram, I'm magnify Maggie. So magnify just like the glass and Maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E. I actually have a an ebook, a Habits for Happiness ebook for your listeners. So if you go to my Instagram and you click the link in my bio, it'll be the first pop-up there. Just something to really help integrate those little habits that'll boost the confidence. So that's Instagram, Magnify Maggie, TikTok, Magnify Maggie J. And then I do a lot of YouTube lessons on mindset, fitness, nutrition, and that's on the Magnify Maggie YouTube channel. So <laughs> awesome. I will put all the links in the show notes at theaddictedmind.com so people can find that too. They'll find all these links there. Maggie, thank you so much for sharing your spirit, your wisdom, your hope uh, with the Addicted Mind audience. I just really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you do for us as your audience. We we all love you. So I <laughs> really you. appreciate thank you having you. me on today. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check them out there. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the Addicted Mind podcast, click subscribe in your podcast app and think about joining our Facebook group. Go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you on the next episode.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.